Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 64. I'm your host, Emily Aries. And today in the podcast, I am excited to finally share with you a conversation all about the FIRE movement, which is an acronym for Financial Independence Retire Early or Financially Independent Retire Early, whatever it is. It's all about being able to quit your day job forever and live off of retirement savings alone. Now, this movement got a lot of ink in the New York Times earlier this fall, which spurred a ton of feedback to the New York Times that got a viral amount of attention. And I mentioned it on a podcast a few episodes ago when I was talking all about the value of workplace flexibility with my friend Carol from Flex Jobs. I'll drop a link in the show notes if you want to revisit that episode. I was excited to hear that a lot of you listeners wanted me to dive in deeper to this topic, which was something I was newly fascinated with as well. And today's episode is the byproduct of that. In fact, one of you called in with a somewhat long and rambling voicemail, but I always welcome those. So don't feel like you have to keep it perfectly scripted, but a great voicemail from a listener who is pursuing something similar to early retirement by getting out of six figures of student loan debt by basically weighing the value of short-term sacrifice for ultimately loan forgiveness. Take a listen. Hi, Emily. Hi, bosses. This is Amanda calling from the Chicagoland area. And I was just calling to talk a little bit more about the fire movement that you mentioned in your last podcast. And being a young doctor and coming out of school with a lot of student debt, I guess what I'm doing with my loans is kind of similar to this fire movement thing. And so I just wanted to like kind of talk about it and make everyone aware of it. But um, as a healthcare provider, I'm able to participate in the public service loan forgiveness program for my student loans because I have only federal loans. And so for that reason, I've enrolled in the program. One of the perks of that is that after 10 years, they forgive your student loan debt. So as part of that, I have made some career decisions to work for a rural hospital who traditionally rural hospitals will pay a little bit more for their physicians as a recruitment strategy, basically. And from there, if I am able to stay on for six years, then including my three years of residency where I was employed by a 501c3, after 10 years of working in the hospital setting, in a rural community, I'll be able to be debt-free, which I guess you could say is financial independence. 
Amanda, thanks so much for calling in and sharing your perspective. I am excited to dive into this topic of the FIRE movement a little bit further. It sounds like a lot of us wanted to know more about this, and I wanted to make sure that we had a guest on the show today who has a lot to share, not only from her personal experience, but also from being a blogger and a writer in the FIRE movement blogger space. That's why I'm so excited to have Tanya Hester joining me on the Boston podcast today. She is the author of the award-winning blog, OurNextLife.com. She's also a longtime political communications strategist, so a woman after my own heart, a community and environmental activist, a big-time reader, and a podcaster. She's half of the dynamic duo behind the Fairer Sense podcast, all about women and money and equality and money. So that's definitely something to check out and add to your podcast must-listen list. She's also a big yoga fan, an outdoors enthusiast, a certified health coach, and retired at the age of 38 at the end of last year alongside her husband, Mark Bunge. So we're going to talk more with Tanya about how she made the fire movement work for her and what that means about our economy writ large and you, your personal household economy, if retiring at 38 sounds like a plan for you too. Tanya, I am so glad to have you on the podcast with me today. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. So I, like so many people, heard about this FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early, when the New York Times published an article about it earlier this season. And it went pretty viral. I had an interesting reaction to the concept of busting your butt at a job that the New York Times article at least made it appear like everybody in the fire movement pretty much hates their job. Mm -hmm. And the majority of those folks are men in programming, earning a very well, a very high salary that are burnt out from that job and want to retire as soon as possible to never have to work another day in their lives. And I had this really disgusted, visceral reaction to that concept as someone who's constantly trying to tell people and help people find a way to pursue work that fulfills them or just to pursue work in a way that in affords you the lifestyle that is happy and healthy for you. So I'm glad that someone like you, who I feel like I can relate to on many levels, is here to help me parse through that reaction because a lot of our listeners at Bossed Up want to know more. So Tanya, tell me from the get-go, it, it sounds like your your journey on the FIRE movement started around 2008, which was not a great financial year for most people. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you started off in, in a pretty average financial situation to then retire at age 38, 10 years later. Yeah. I, oh gosh, I want to say so much in response to that, because I think there is an idea that early retirement is just a bunch of, I mean, let's be honest, like entitled 30-something white dudes. And I really think that strain exists in the FIRE movement, but it's really not the main thing that we're about. I think most people who want to retire early do so because we want to be able to have more freedom in our lives, which honestly, I think you can do with or without having a large financial cushion. You can go out and work for yourself and do things that a lot of your listeners are doing, or you can do what I call entrepreneurship for wimps, which is early retirement, which is save up the biggest safety net possible before you make the leap and then then do it. And so for someone like me, who's much more financially conservative, um, not politically conservative, but financially, having that big safety net is an enormous comfort. So for me, 
about, let's see, yeah, it was a little over 10 years ago, I had a net worth of essentially zero. I had just paid off my student loans. I had just paid off a car and some credit card debt and was just starting to get ahead in life, honestly. And you were about 28 at that time. Is that right? Yeah, just about 29. I just turned 39. So um, no longer 38. But yeah, yeah, in in that range in my late 20s. And I had spent most of my 20s feeling like I was just treading water. Um, My husband, Mark, and I were living in LA and we felt like we were never going to be able to buy a place looking at property prices before the recession there. And we felt like, wow, we work so hard. We have very good jobs. We were both in political consulting, which pays decently well. And it still felt like despite all that, we're not getting anywhere. And It was around that time when we just decided, you know, maybe we want to explore other options for our life. At that point, we didn't know about early retirement as an option. We just started to think about like, how can we put ourselves in a position to take advantage of opportunities? Lucky for us, I mean, this is like a horrible thing to say, because obviously the 2008 crash hurt so many people, but it was the thing that really let us actually get into the housing market for the first time, buy our first place. We just bought a small condo in LA. It was nothing fancy, although we did fix it up and make it pretty fun. But Then that sort of continued because actually my company then decided to close our office in LA. So they said to me, you still have your job, uh, but you don't have an office anymore. So then Mark and I were both working at home. And we after that said, well, do we have to stay in LA then? Or could we go somewhere that really speaks to our hearts and souls? I mean, I still love LA, so no, no shade there. But it uh, was not necessarily the place that supported the lifestyle we wanted to live, which was being outdoors, being able to get out into the mountains. And so in 2011, we moved to Lake Tahoe, California, and that was very much made possible for us by starting to save up money in earnest and taking advantage of an opportunity, which was a huge bummer. Obviously, the recession was not good news, but I think if you make a habit of saving instead of spending all your money, then you have more flexibility to make choices like that. And so then over the years, we we kept saving. I will definitely say it helped a ton that we continued to increase our earnings. So I don't want it to sound like we did this on middle-class incomes. We did not. We were both earning six figures. But that was thanks to very hard work and taking advantage of opportunities and throwing ourselves into our jobs, which is not at all the early retirement message, which is very much like check out and lean out. And we were leaning in at every turn to try to boost our earnings. And yeah, then about a year ago, at the end of 2017, we retired early and I still work just as much as I did before, but now it's on projects for me and I don't care whether they make money or not. And that's just an incredible privilege. There's a mixture of righteous indignation that the the trajectory you just described is so inaccessible to so many people who really want that. And that that second component, which is pure jealousy, <laughs> right? And like, I just want to say for everyone who's feeling a pang of personal insecurity when they hear that story, that you're not alone, that it is okay for us to acknowledge that that what Tanya and her husband did is a feat, is an achievement. And yeah, it's not fair. It's not like we all were handed the same deck of cards to work with here. But what can we all glean from your journey? Like what what is accessible to everybody in the fire movement that you think? Because I've got a caller who called in to say, you know what, I'm kind of applying fire principles to my life. I'm a recent graduate of medical school with $300,000 in debt. So being 28, and having any kind of a positive net worth is light years away from where she's at. You know, how can anybody, even those who are very 
deeply into a financial hole, apply some of the principles that helped you get to where you and your husband are today? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And and the thing that I will say to encourage folks, because I understand and I know I've never been in $300,000 of debt, but I have been in debt that far exceeded my annual income. And I know how bleak that can feel. The thing that I will say is having been at sort of every level of financial independence from just having an emergency fund saved to having a few years of expenses saved to having enough saved that now we never have to work again, which is again, not to say we never will. I hope never to be formally employed, but I work every day uh, is the truth. (laughs) The thing I will say is that having a year or two of your expenses covered honestly feels just as good as having all of your life's worth of expenses covered. Knowing that you can quit a bad job, knowing that you can move if you have to, knowing you can leave a relationship and not have to stay in a relationship for money, those are things that honestly are the best part of this. And those are not nearly as inaccessible as getting to a point where you never have to work again. So I think biting the goal off into small pieces And I think the biggest things, honestly, you know, you can boil down the good financial advice to a few steps. One is don't overpay on housing. If you can buy a cheaper home or pay less in rent, do it. If you can underspend on transportation, drive an old car for a long time, or think about ways to reduce your commuting costs. Those are the two areas where you can really save the most money. And then focus on increasing your earnings. And as you do that, bank all your raises so you're not inflating your lifestyle. If you can do those four things, you will put yourself on a path to financial security and the like the deep soul comfort that comes with that. Whether or not you can retire early, you know, not everybody needs that, first of all. And second of all, I don't honestly think it makes you all that much happier than just knowing you have flexibility in your life. I love that. That That is some comfort, I think, to people who are feeling jealous because they have to head into a job they don't like. I relate this back to the F off fund. I did an interview with Tanya Rapley, a financial advisor for my prior show, Stuff Mom Never Told You, that I'll link to in the show notes below, that made a direct link between women escaping financial abuse or abusive relationships writ large by having our own money. So there's also a a moral argument, not just a capitalistic financial argument, but there's a very strong moral argument to why women and my listeners are women, why women in particular owe it to ourselves and to our loved ones to get our own financial life together, to get us on strong footing. And I think the millennial generation has a very strong drive to do that, having witnessed and weathered the Great Recession that called a lot of assumptions into question. So I'd love to ask you about one particular post you wrote that I thought was really interesting. It was all about where you were back when you first started this endeavor and how you shouldn't let slow or seemingly really slow progress demoralize you and take you off path. I think for anybody who's pursuing long-term goals like early retirement, which takes a decade at least, probably two, is going to weather some bumps along the way. So What's your philosophy there and how does compound interest <laughs> help or sort of how does how does this snowball effect come into fruition, even if the first couple of years of living in this lifestyle and in this methodology might not make you feel like you're moving very fast? Yeah, I mean, I think it's true with any big goal, to be honest, but I, I think it for sure is true with pursuing big financial goals. The hard thing is that 
because so much of your growth long term comes from compound interest or market growth, if you're investing or if you're paying off a loan, you know, you're trying to get to a point where you're no longer paying an overwhelming amount of interest that's piling up each month the initial progress is always going to feel very slow. And it's really hard to trust that that's eventually going to going to flip and turn into fast progress. And it's one of those things where, you know, I try to put myself back in my shoes of 2008, looking at sort of starting to save and starting to get a positive net worth. What advice would I have wanted to hear? And I don't know that there's anything I could have said to myself that would have made it feel better. But I, I can say from myself and looking at dozens of other people who've retired early, or I know a lot of people through the personal finance blogging community who've paid off enormous amounts of debt. So I absolutely know that paying off three, four, five hundred thousand dollars is possible. If you really focus and especially someone who's been to med school and has high earnings potential, it's very doable. But you do have to trust that it's going to snowball at some point. And, you know, it's sort of like the the metaphor that planes use most of their fuel on takeoff, which by the way, is not actually true. <laughs> I've talked to several pilots about it, but I still like the metaphor though, because it's sort of like that in reverse. It's like that you have to know that the curve is not going to be linear. It's going to start out looking shallow and you're going to feel like, oh, I'm just climbing, I'm just climbing. And then eventually it's going to take off. And I know like if you look at, I have some net worth posts on the blog, you can see that line. It, it does that exponential kind of curve. And I've seen that time and time again. So it's one of those things where I just want to say to everybody, like it gets better <laughs> and stay with it. The curve does bend in your favor, but you have to trust. And I think a good way to do that is really look at how far you've come and not how far you have to go. Because looking at how far you have to go is very discouraging or can be. Whereas looking at how far you come, you'll go like, yeah, look at, I've, I've done this, I've done that. And keeping it in perspective of how much you earn versus how much you're saving, that stuff can be really motivating. Yeah, that's a great point. It sounds to me like the challenge, the motivational challenge is what feels like sacrifice, right? You're, you're living far below your means, but what does that actually look like in real time? It sounds like this movement almost requires a pretty high earnings potential. So I'd love for you to speak to those two sides of it. What did you have to do to make more money that our listeners can maybe consider doing? And what did you do to control expenses so that you could bank those raises, as, as you've said, and not have lifestyle creep really increase your expenses as you earned more? First, I would say there are definitely people in the movement who have achieved early retirement without earning six figures. And even in a couple, there's one couple named Robert and Robin Charlton who wrote a book that self-published on Amazon called How to Retire Early, where they only together earned six figures for the last few years, and it was just barely above. So it's absolutely possible. I think in that case, though, you're going to have to control your expenses a lot more. I think if you live in an expensive city, your expenses are going to be high. It's it's just a fact that earning more helps. So for us, you know, I side hustled for 10 years. I taught yoga and spinning six to eight times a week. I was exhausted all the time. I wouldn't recommend anyone follow that course. Yeah. But I absolutely did that to earn extra and kind of my young and, and mid-level career years. And then as I got more senior, it was not possible to do both. But the good thing was my earnings at that point outpaced. So I kind of had to do that calculus of look at all the things I'm saying no to by having this side hustle. You know, I was having to say like, oh, I can't do a conference call then because I'll be in class or I have to leave this call now to go get to class. That was holding me back. And so it was understanding when was that point when it was better to really commit to my job. 
But I think that that's a big point. You know, that's very much lost in the fire message, which is all about leaving your career. And I think the more you can commit to it and really do your best and say, this is a chapter of my life and I don't want to do this forever. But while I'm here, I want to do it as well as I possibly can. And I want to lift others up so that when I leave, I have a wonderful group of folks I've helped mentor. Those were all things that were important to me and that I think really helped us get ahead. And I think Mark similarly really focused on the part of work that he didn't love the most. He didn't love the hustling for new business, for new clients. And he just kind of accepted, okay, I don't love that part. I've never really done that well. I've done the other parts well, but I'm going to lean into that too. And so on the earning side, that, that really helped us. On the saving side, it's so funny because I often get the question from people and they'll say, wow, you must just be so disciplined or you must be the, the, a natural saver. I'm like, I am neither of those yeah. things. <laughs> the best advice I can give anyone is to automate the process. I think the more we have to rely on willpower, the harder it is to do any goal. So it's the same as people will say, like, if you want to work out in the morning, put your gym clothes on before you go to bed, then you're already dressed. You've removed the excuses. We sort of did the same thing with money. So I started this out because I discovered early in my career, I was horrible at saving money. I wasn't saving anything. I had zero cash and a lot of debt. It was really scary. And I realized that when I was filling out new payroll paperwork at work, I could have my paycheck split so that I could have most of it go to my checking and put whatever amount I wanted into savings. So I started with $50 a pay period. It wasn't huge. It was $100 a month, but that was something. And that was more than I'd ever saved before. And that was really my big light bulb moment. And we used that for the rest of our savings period of we just kept amping that up so that anytime we got a raise, we didn't let any new money come into checking. So we kept the same amount in checking basically year over year over year. And then all raises, we just went into automated investments or we put them into savings without seeing them. And honestly, for us, that was the best trick is like, when you never see the money and you don't feel like you have it to spend you don't spend it, or at least we didn't. I think you described it before as hiding money from yourself, which I kind (laughs) of love because I'm the kind of person who can't diet. I can't handle a constant amount of (laughs) feeling deprived and deprivation isn't particularly good for motivation anyway. So this idea of removing that feeling of deprivation and just allowing that paper to stack without you even really trying, I think is a really genius strategy. So for anybody out there who's negotiating a year-end raise, which is something I'm going to be podcasting more about this quarter, who's thinking about how the job search that you're on right now might increase your quality of life or might increase your take-home pay, what can you do to find even ground for yourself, stay there, and then automate the raise for going somewhere else? So where Well, I have a million questions for you. So pardon me if I'm getting all uh, geeked out here. But you've also described the journey you've been on as falling to three different phases, which I really want to explain for our listeners today. The first, which is what we focused on so much of the conversation so far, is the accumulation phase. Second is what you're calling early retirement phase. Congratulations. I hope you're enjoying the ride so far. And then traditional retirement. So can you describe those three different phases for me and and what changes for you and your lifestyle in each of those? Yeah. So accumulation is really just when you're saving up whatever it might be. So in our case, we were looking to invest primarily in index funds, which are essentially just a little tiny slice of every stock in the stock market. If you buy the S&P 500 index, it's a little tiny share of 
everything that's in the S&P 500. So that tends to be over time, the, the best and lowest fee way to invest. It's also taking all the pressure off you to have to uh, pick winning stocks, which for me was very intimidating and I was not interested in doing that. So I think it's similar to automating. It's like, if you can just buy index funds, you take all the guesswork out of it. You take all the pressure off yourself, same as, as automated saving. And so that was really our focus for the last decade or so. Then now we're living in early retirement. And the way that we structured our funds is we have a certain chunk in what we think of as taxable investment. So that just means not 401k, not IRA, not, you know, solo 401k, all the things that your listeners might have for retirement, which have age restrictions, have tax restrictions, things like that. If you just have regular brokerage fund investments, you can tap those anytime with no tax penalty. So that's the phase we're in now. Although I'll be honest, I think we are not actually tapping into our investments yet because we're still both working a little bit. You know, I still have the blog, the podcast. I wrote a book that's coming out next spring. So we haven't needed to get into that yet. And I think for a lot of early retirees, that is true. I don't know very many who are actually drawing down their investments yet because you get here and you realize there's all this stuff I want to do and some of it happens to pay and why would I not want it to pay me? Right. (laughs) And so that's awesome. Yeah. So that's where we are now. I'm sure we'll tap into those investments a few years down the road, but we're not there yet. And then our traditional retirement, you know, sort of in line with not wanting to rely on willpower to, to save. We also didn't want to rely on financial perfection to have security in our later years. So we saved an entirely different pool of funds. We have in essence, a fully funded traditional retirement, 401ks, IRAs, um, a vision for healthcare, which we we sure hope Medicare will still be there for us, uh, as we all do. Uh, We're not relying on social security, but otherwise it's, it's meant to be very secure so that even if we screw this part up, our early retirement, we overspend, we go crazy with travel, we're still okay in our later years. I think that was a big concern for us. I think there are versions of early retirement where you can tap some of those traditional retirement tax advantaged funds early. That just made me very nervous. The thought of not knowing until we're 80 that we didn't save enough. And then what are you going to do about it? So I really am a fan of the three phases rather than just two phases so that you set yourself up for security later on, no matter what. I've got two questions for you related to what you just said. One is, what does your monthly expense look like? Because I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're not paying down a mortgage at this point. So you're able to live off of a much reduced income than what you were making previously. But is that true? And and what are your regular expenses? What do you indulge upon? And what do you really cut back on in terms of your monthly or regular budget? We did pay off our house about almost two years ago now, which was really a deliberate effort to pay down that mortgage quickly. And that was not something I ever expected to say, um, but it feels pretty great to wake up every day in a house that's paid off. We also have two older cars. So we have essentially zero ongoing car payments. We have insurance. We live in a place where it can earthquake, wildfire, blizzard, lots of stuff. So we have a lot of insurance. Our utilities are also fairly high because it's cold here in the winter. We keep our house pretty cold to try to keep the gas bill down, but it's still a lot. So Month to month, the hard thing is this year we have probably overspent where we plan to be just because we've made a little bit extra that we've thought like, let's take a couple extra trips. Yeah, that's great. Especially if these are the bonus income checks, right? This is like bonus money. So that's great. Yeah. So the way that we look at it is more like what's the least we could live on. And right now, taking everything into account, we do have some big expenses like insurance and property tax. 
which that never goes away, even if you pay off the house. We think that the minimum we could do is about 1500 a month. That said, we are not living on that little. Um, but there are tons of things we don't pay for that lots of people do. Again, like house payment is done, car payment's done. We're going to keep our cars as long as we possibly can. We don't pay for cable. We have cheap cell phone plans. We don't buy a lot of clothes. We don't, you know, like my phone is four years old. Like those are things that we just, those would be great. You know, a new phone would be fun, but it doesn't ultimately make me any happier. And that's how we try to look at stuff. I don't judge any particular expenses. Like you'll see sometimes people say like, oh, you're paying for a latte at Starbucks. I'm like, if that latte is the best part of your day, you pay that and you enjoy that thing. Right. (laughs) But if you just gulp it down, you don't even taste it. Like (laughs) don't spend that money. (laughs) I can't help but pick up on what you just said, Tanya, because it sounds so much like my husband, Brad, you said, we look at how little can we live off of. And I have this like visceral reaction to that, which is totally the money story playing out in my partner's head. He is thrilled to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch because he knows that means he's got 10 more dollars in his pocket. You know, there's no sensation of deprivation there. And, you know, like you're saying, it's almost it's like a very personal value. You have to be very in touch with your personal values. And for me, you know, a little treat yourself like a Groupon massage makes a world of a difference. If I reward myself with spending on occasion, then feeling constantly like, how little can I live off of? So somehow Brad and I are balancing each other out in that way. But I wonder how you and your partner have negotiated that. Do you two have that same mentality? Is this something you've come to over the years? Or has this been an ongoing negotiation? Oh, gosh, I love that question so much because I'm totally like you. Let me show you the planner I just ordered from Japan. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was like, I've worked hard this year. We've we've done better than we expected. And I think it's okay to have some nice things that you enjoy that feel like treats. I think it's it's about understanding. It's sort of, it's the scarcity model. We adjust to whatever we're used to. So if you're used to buying your things, yourself things all the time and treating yourself constantly, those things don't actually stick and don't actually give you lasting happiness. So I think if you can sort of find a balance, which is what I had to get to, because I was definitely in the treat yourself every day kind of camp before. Yeah, yeah. And Mark a little bit too, you know, not in terms of stuff, but he would love to buy drinks for everybody at the bar or go to really nice dinners, which we both enjoyed. And it's easy to burn through a lot of money that way. But if you make those splurges fewer and far between and try to like think about them longer, I think that they feel much more special. And if you can sort of get to that place, which that just takes practice. Honestly, it's just building up that muscle and sort of learning like, okay, there will be more money. I don't need to have a scarcity mindset about it, but I still need to treat myself in smaller ways. Yeah. I love that because it's not about mindlessly spending. It's about giving yourself a gift that's only really special if you don't give yourself that gift every day. Yep. So I love, love, love that. So I'm sure you get this all the time. And I'm not asking this to provoke any amount of anxiety on your part. But it seems to me as much of a anti, as much of a radical movement as the fire movement seems to be, it's bucking a lot of assumptions about how we should live our lives. There's one assumption it seems to be doubling down on, which is that our stock market is worth investing in over the course of our lifetimes, at least. Who knows what's going to happen in 100 years, but as long as the stock market is still doing its thing, based on historical precedent up until when we're 100, this is an okay investment. That's a really big assumption 
to be underlying your entire financial plan, especially for those in the fire movement who are living solely off of, let's say, the the 4% rule, right? This idea that you can withdraw a 4% dividend of whatever your stocks made, assuming that on average, our stocks are going to make 4% year over year, even when you have a couple of really bad years in there. How do you reconcile that? And are you a gung-ho fan of Wall Street? Or what does that look like in terms of your banking on banking? Oh, gosh, that's a question close to my heart. Because no, I do not tend to be super optimistic about the long-term prospects of the stock market. And you look at the report that came out from the UN about climate change. In 20 years, half of us are going to be underwater. (laughs) don't know how we can look at that and feel great about the stock market, which is not to say I don't feel good about it, but I don't know that we can assume it's always going to make the same kind of returns it's made over the last century. So I think there are a few things that are really worth thinking about. One is just always to diversify. If all your eggs are in the stock market basket, that's no good no matter what. That's bad investing strategy. So you should at a minimum be in bonds and allocation like 70-30. I am not an investment professional. That is not real investment advice, but that is one that is recommended time and time again by pros. The other thing you can do is like we bought a rental property to rent to a relative with a disability. That's part of our plan as well. That gives us a little bit more diversification where we'll have that rental income kind of no matter how the stock market's doing. That's something that's worth considering if you have the temperament to be a landlord. I don't recommend it for everyone. But the bigger thing I would say is the principle that I think those of us, especially those of us who do tend to focus on um, fear or risk, like this idea that there is a zero risk option and a high risk option. That's not actually true. Everything is a risk. It's a matter of choosing which risk you're most comfortable with. And what helped me especially was understanding that if you're putting money in a savings account right now, if you get the very best interest rate available in a savings account, you're making about one and a quarter percent. In the past, it's been a little higher, but that's like the best you can do right now. If you put things in a CD, the best you're going to do right now is about 1.6%. Well, guess what inflation is right now? Inflation's about two and a half percent at the moment. That's more than you're making on that CD or your savings. And so even though the savings account comes with that comfort of FDIC insurance, you know, you can't lose the money you're actually guaranteeing yourself losing value every single year because inflation is going to keep growing. Your spending power is going to keep shrinking relative to inflation. And we so rarely talk about the power of inflation and how much that matters. So for me, understanding that and knowing that, hey, stock market investing is not perfect. It's certainly not likely to be as strong in the future as as it has been in the past. It's also just about the only thing that all of us have access to that is most likely to beat inflation. And so that's something that it's just understanding that there's no risk-free option. It's choosing which risk and the idea of having at least the potential to grow faster than inflation was the thing that ultimately won me over. My last question for you is how the hell did you learn all this stuff? (laughs) And for somebody who's listening, who's like, wait, what did she just say? What the hell is inflation? I forget about like, what is a bond here at Bossed Up yesterday, the day before the airing of this show, we had a live podcast show in D.C. featuring three different financial professionals, all talking about women and wealth, which I know is something you feel strongly about. I sure as hell feel strongly about the moral case for women to increase our earnings and increase our net, our net value. What is it? What's the word? Net worth. That's the one. (laughs) And people (laughs) like me need more of a primer on this. So other than ournextlife.com, which is your blog full of really interesting 
advice and actionable practical stories of your experience, where do you begin to really ground yourself in this level of expertise? And at what point do you bring in a financial professional? Yeah, it is in the best interest of the financial services industry for us all to feel scared of this stuff. And in particular, I think that women are are socialized to believe that we can't be good at money, that this stuff is beyond our understanding. And the reason for that is because there are companies that hold trillions of dollars in assets that want you to have to pay them to manage your money for you. And the reality is that none of this is that complicated. And a lot of it is just getting over that mental hurdle of saying, I can learn all this. And also understanding that I don't need to know all of it. I could not tell you right now about derivatives or about collateralized debt obligations or all those things that took down the economy in (laughs) 2008. I can sort of list some of them, but I couldn't tell you what they are. But you don't need to know that. You need to know the basics, which is understanding what inflation is and how that affects your, your growth long term, understanding basic investment options, mainly what the fees are. But in terms of actual resources, so my book is called Work Optional. It comes out next March. And I'm really trying to break all this stuff down to make it very digestible and make sure that you learn there what you need to know. And also, don't bog you down with the stuff you don't need to know. Uh, There are two other books that I love by friend authors that are wonderful for folks, especially if you feel like you're a financial beginner. One is called Broke Millennial by Aaron Lowry. And that is just a wonderful primary our primer on kind of understanding the financial system, understanding how to get your financial life together. That's her, her catchphrase. The other is Get Money by Kristen Wong. And I think she'd actually prefer if I pronounce it as get money, like, do you get money? But it's about gamifying the finances. And so that's very much a financial primer, but also a nice way to do some of the things I talked about, like automating things and giving yourself rewards and things that feel sort of like a game where it feels fun and interesting. So those are two great resources that I just, I recommend really highly for folks who are a little further along, you know, there are tons of advanced financial books. I think um, rarely are those things necessary, but in terms of when to bring in a financial advisor, I I think the thing that I'd really say to all women, because I, I feel just as strongly as you do about empowering women financially and helping us feel confident in our ability to manage this stuff there's no shame if you feel like you want to hire someone because you have too much on your plate and you just need one fewer, one fewer thing to do. No worries. However, please don't hire a pro because you think you can't do it or you can't learn it. This stuff is much easier to learn than you think. And if you read honestly one or two books, you'll be in great shape. You'll know everything you need to know. And the thing I will say though is if you have a big long-term plan or you decide you want to pursue early retirement, it's really great to get a second opinion the same way you would if you got a complicated medical diagnosis and have someone look at your plan, build out your plan, say, here's what I'm saving. Here's what I want to project for earnings in the future. Here's the timeline. Here are my assumptions on raises or higher earnings in my freelance work and have someone check your work. That is a great way to use an advisor. And then they can tell you, well, have you thought about this? Maybe you want some more life insurance. Maybe you want to anticipate higher healthcare expenses in the future. And that's great. I always love people who can say, oh, you haven't thought about this. You haven't thought about that. And then you can refine your plan. But don't assume that you need an advisor because you can't handle it because we all can. Totally. I love that. I will drop links to all of those great books in the show notes below. And for more on this, especially as it relates to women and money, it sounds like we should all check out the Fair Sense podcast where you and your co-host break down topics related to money and women. Can you tell us more about that show? Yeah, it's uh, it's very much a feminist podcast. So just FYI. And we talk a lot about the harder stuff. You know, we're not interested in just saying like, hey, you can invest. It's really more like, 
what's behind the wage gap? What's behind the wealth gap? What about the motherhood pay gap? And we break all that stuff down. Let's talk about emotional labor. Let's talk about toxic masculinity in our money. So we really try to get into the hard stuff and, and get into the nuance of it all so that we can all, you know, try to see things from angles we haven't seen and also understand just in this financially patriarchal society, how do we all do our very best? Tanya, thank you so much for joining me on Bossed Up. As a reminder, you can catch Tanya Hester's writing at OurNextLife.com. And for any of my listeners who are jumping into the FIRE movement, I want to hear from you. Give us a ring on the Bossed Up hotline to share your next boss move if you are committing to making your own financial plan, and especially if you're taking any of this great advice Tanya just shared to heart and putting it into practice. Thanks again, Tanya. Thanks so much. This was a blast. Isn't she awesome, y'all? I feel so inspired to get my money life together even further and hope you do too. So if you take action on any of the advice Tanya shared on today's podcast, or if you've got a reaction to any of the advice she gave or anywhere our conversation went, I'd love to hear from you. Give me a ring at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. And thanks to everybody who's been calling in lately with your career conundrums and your boss moves, including... This week's Boss Moves Moment of the Week. Hi, my name is Kelly. I wanted to call in and submit a boss up move. So I currently am in a role at work, a position at work that I'm not really getting any traction for further career opportunities at the moment. I haven't gotten a raise in a couple of years, so I'm really kind of just feeling down about the whole situation. But recently, I was able to get two work conferences approved. Both are women's leadership-focused conferences. So with tons of breakout sessions that are very appealing to me, I'm very much interested in professional development. So I did get both of those approved, got the funding approved for those. And I actually took it from a tip from the Bossed Up group. Someone had posted a question And one of the responses was, if you're not getting compensated in other ways, then take it into your own hands, start requesting extras, start requesting fees for conferences and other professional development things you can do. So I went ahead and did that. I got both approved. I'm driving on my way home from the first conference right now, the Chicago Women's Booth Conference. And the next conference is actually next week in Milwaukee. Yes, Boz, I am so proud to hear from you and so thrilled that you've decided to call in and share your come up story. Calling in on the Bossed Up podcast hotline with your boss move doesn't have to be a big deal. It's just a way for us to acknowledge the progress we are making in our own lives, that we are proud of ourselves in a world that keeps telling women not to be. So make your voice heard, share your boss move so we can cheer you on too at 910-668-BOSS. And now it's time for this week's Weekly review. My time to say thank you to each and every one of you who take time out of your day to rate and review the Bossed Up podcast because your ratings and yes, your reviews go a long way in making sure our show is discovered by other women who could use it. 
So here's a great review that just came in from Celine K. Wolf. She called it perfect for improving your career. I love how Emily covers the sticky subjects that arise during one's career. Zero fluff. Every episode feels like you're chatting with a girlfriend, getting advice on things you wouldn't know how to get answered unless you had a mentor. Celine, I consider you and all of my listeners my girlfriends. So thank you for tuning in and thank you so much for putting into words so eloquently my commitment to zero BS on getting to the point on this podcast. It means the world to me and your words really go a long way. So thank you, Celine, for writing in and thanks for listening. If you want to leave your review and you're listening in the iTunes or Apple podcast app right now, just scroll all the way down in your podcast app right now. You'll see all the stars down there. Feel free to select five stars for the Boston podcast if you feel that's appropriate, of course, and then add your commentary then to submit your review. I read everyone myself every single week. And really, y'all, they mean the world to me. Thanks again for tuning in and hearing all that Tanya Hester of OurNextLife.com had to share. I can't wait to hear what y'all think of the FIRE movement, especially after this conversation. Did you have that visceral reaction that I had when I first read the New York Times story about it? Which, by the way, I'll link to in the show notes below. It was so full of techie, frat boy-sounding financial gurus that it really put me off, to be quite honest. I think the messenger influenced the message when it came to how I was hearing from fire movement people. And I feel a lot differently now that I've talked it over with Tanya Hester, who's really bringing a feminist approach to financial independence. I'd love to hear what you thought about today's episode. So screenshot it, tag me on social media at Emily Aries or Bastup.org. And as always, you can always comment on the blog post directly at bossedup.org slash episode 64. In the meantime, keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll continue to lift as we climb.
let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup. 